Good morning. It's really good to see you all again. It's good to be down here. Kim and I are grateful for a beautiful morning to have traveled without snow, without ice, without wind too much. So we're really grateful for that. Last time I was here, I really enjoyed our time of worship together. But while we were worshiping and I was preaching, Kim had the live stream on in her uh, rehab facility there in St. Louis Park. And it sparked up a conversation with a housekeeper in that place. The next thing you know, when I got back there, I find myself in a, in a, a a three-way prayer meeting there with her, and we're ministering to her. Her husband had a dialysis going on, and so we got to minister with her not only that day, but also uh, in coming days as well. And so while we were here worshiping, God was at work all the way up in the Twin Cities, and so I'm just grateful. Isn't it awesome to just know that while we're doing whatever we're doing, God's at work in ways that we don't even know? And I suspect that most of what God's doing in us and through us is in ways we don't even know. So I trust that he's working with us this morning as well. So let me pray now for our time in the Word, and then I will bring the Word to you. Our Father, I thank you so much for who you are and for what you have done. I thank you for the eternal fact that you are the faithful God. And I pray that you would help persuade us more about that today. And I pray that you would help us to be encouraged in our life in your word today. I pray that we would be all the more encouraged to feed upon you and feed upon your speech so that we might bear the fruit that you have appointed for us to bear in the world. Please help Abraham and Sarah to continue to be an example of faith to us. And please help us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive you today. In Jesus' name we pray. When I was with you last time, I mentioned along the way that while Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith, it really ought to be called the hall of the faithfulness of God because this chapter is fundamentally about God. It's not fundamentally about the people that are mentioned in this chapter. It's about the fact that people put their trust in God and found him to be faithful. Faith is having a deep insurance, uh, assurance of the things we hope for, and the things we hope for are the things of God, right? So the focus is on God, not on us. Faith is having the conviction that what God promised is going to come to pass because he's faithful and he means exactly what he says and he always does exactly what he says he's going to do. God is faithful. So again, we ought to think about this chapter as the hall of the faithfulness of God and we ought to think about faith in this way, that faith is essentially trusting in the faithfulness of God. I need you to come up and help me. I don't know what to do. Okay, Ryan, we'll switch to this. Oh, I see. Just turn that on. Yeah. There we go. We good to go? Sorry about that, people. We had technical difficulties. <laughs> I'm glad you have this, though, and I don't have to hold the microphone. I don't like having to hold the microphone while I'm preaching, so praise God for that. By the way, every time there's a technical difficulty, I always think to myself, technology will fail, but God will never fail. <laughs> so even in technological difficulties, we can rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is faithful. In the heart of faith, more should be said and needs to be said about faith, but the heart of faith is trusting in his faithfulness. That's what faith is about. Faith isn't a feeling. It's not a force, and it's not some kind of foolishness. Faith is trust. Faith is trusting in our Heavenly Father. And so this time with you, I want to add one more thought to this. I want to talk with you about the practical way in which we put our trust in the faithfulness of God day by day. There, there is practical counsel in Hebrews 11 for each of us. Namely, the practical way we put our trust in the faithfulness of God is by clinging to his promises as communicated in his word. And ultimately, his word is not the Bible. Ultimately, his word is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is called the word of God. 
I'm not saying that the Bible is not the word of God. I'm saying ultimately faith is a personal thing because Jesus Christ himself is the word of God. You may remember from Hebrews chapter 1 that in the former days God spoke to his people through prophets in a number of ways and in a variety of times. But in these last days, the author says, God has spoken to us finally and decisively through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the final speech of God into the world. And having spoken through his son, God has nothing more to say. What more could God possibly have to say than what he said in and through Jesus Christ? In Jesus, all the fullness of deity is revealed to us. So what more is there to say? Jesus is the final speech of God. He is the final word of God. He is the one to whom we cling. He is, in the end of the day, the food of our faith. The way faith functions, then, is that we trust in the faithfulness of God by clinging to his word, which essentially is Jesus himself, but then is also communicated to us through his spoken word, his revealed words in the Bible. The Bible that tells us all that we need to know in this age about Jesus, about God the Father, about God the Holy Spirit, about God's purposes and promises and plans. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in this age. And again, primarily, that's Jesus Christ, but then also it's in the revealed words of God. So the way faith works is that it draws near to the Lord and nourishes itself by the word, the Lord himself and his revealed speech. Faith is not nourished by trying to conjure up more faith because faith is not a feeling, right? Faith is not conjured up by trying to learn to pray in a certain way and say certain words in a certain tone and in a certain force and at exactly the right time. Faith is not magic. Faith is not some kind of force. Faith is a relational trusting in the Lord our God. So the way faith is nourished is by drawing near to Jesus, the word of God, and hovering over his revealed words together with him. Beloved, faith needs food. And the word of God is the food of faith. That's the main thing I'm here to drive home to you today. I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord one day or one year or 30 or 40 or 50 years. The, the word of God is the food of your faith and you need that word or your faith is going to malnourish. We need the presence of Jesus in our Christ in our lives every day. We need the presence of his revealed speech in our lives every day as we draw near to him. Every single example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is custom designed, and I mean it just like that, custom designed to show us how this works. Every single example of faith in Hebrews 11 is is designed to show us how somebody received word from the Lord, clung to those words because they were trusting in the Lord who gave those words, and then walked by faith. And those examples are designed to help us figure out a way to live our lives in this world. Life in this world is not easy. Hebrews 11 is trying to show us how to do it. And the way we do it is by nourishing our faith by his word and and trusting in the God who spoke those words. And so with that in mind, I want to talk with you today about the lives of Abraham and Sarah, two people in the Bible who've probably been the most influential in Kim and Mai's life. Just over the years, it just seems like God is just constantly drawing us back to Abraham and Sarah. They have been such a father and mother of the faith to us. I told Kim yesterday, I just can't wait to meet them. Not like a groupie, you know, not like a fan, but as a brother in Christ, as a a mentee in Christ. They've shown me so much. And so I'm eager to talk with you about their lives today.
The author of Hebrews could have said a lot about Abraham. A lot of Genesis is devoted to his life. But he chose to focus our attention on, on just a few things because, again, he's trying to highlight for us this, this pattern in Abraham's life. So he begins with Abraham's obedience. And in order for us to understand that, we're going to have to keep a finger here in Hebrews 11, but turn back to Genesis 12 real quick. So if you'll just flip back to Genesis 12, I want to read verses 1 through 4 with you. The Lord said more things to Abraham than this, but this is where it all began. This is where God issued speech to our brother and then called him to walk in his ways according to that speech. So here in Abraham's life, we have the presence of God and the revealed words of God that are guiding this man's life all the days of his life until, until his death and actually beyond his death, even to now. These things are guiding Abraham's life. So here's what Moses wrote in Genesis 12, 1 to 4. <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, and I just want to emphasize that. We're dealing with God's speech here. Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, on the basis of the speech that I just issued to you, Abram, or Abram went, as the Lord had told him. Again, notice the speech of God is in view there. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, again, notice first of all, that the word of God spoken to Abraham is what caused him to leave his country and everything that was familiar to him and go to an absolutely foreign land. Can you imagine receiving a command like this at the age of 75? When the Lord says to you, pack up everything you have, pack up everybody under your authority, and just start walking. And I'll tell you when you get there. I'm not going to reveal the place to you. I'm just going to reveal my word to you. I'm going to give myself to you, but just... Pick up everything and go. That would be a, a very challenging command, but I think Abraham eagerly embraced that command and he went. But the thing that caused him to go was not a, a flight of fantasy or feeling. It was the revealed word of God to him. Abraham didn't know a single thing about the country to which he was going. He didn't know what it was called. He didn't know what the peoples were like there. He didn't know their culture. He didn't know their politics. He didn't know their religion. He didn't know anything. All he knew was this. He knew for a fact that God had spoken to him, and for him, the word of God was enough. For him, the word of God nourished his heart, it nourished his soul, it guided his life, and he set out on that journey, trusting in the faithfulness of God to his words. This is the pattern that God is wanting to draw us to, beloved. This is how faith works. Faith draws near to God. I, I doubt very much that Genesis 12 is the first time Abraham sought God I think this is just part of his ongoing communion with the Lord. And when the time was right, God revealed a great thing to him. In the midst of everyday life, God said, I've got a life changer for you today, Abraham. And this is how faith works. We draw near to God. We nourish on his presence. We nourish ourselves by his words. And then we live our lives accordingly by the power of his Holy Spirit. When we think carefully about Genesis 12, we see that Abraham receive one command from the Lord and many promises from the Lord. The command is very simple. It's there at the beginning and it's somewhat like the Great Commission. He just says, go, 
I want you to pick up everything, walk into a future that's uncertain to you, but not uncertain to me, pick up everything and go. And then the promises are there every time you read the words, I will. And I'm not going to reiterate all those for you in the interest of time, but please notice all the I will statements because these I will statements became the food of faith for Abraham. They crescendo in this idea that through Abraham and his family, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's a tremendous promise. And I'm telling you, I've carefully looked at Abraham's life for decades of my life. And I'm telling you, he and his precious bride nourished their souls on these promises day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The promises of God were indeed the food of their faith. And again, this is what God wants us to understand. He wants us to know that faith needs food, and his word is the food of faith. With this in mind, let's go back to Hebrews 11 now. And please draw your attention to Hebrews 11.9, because there, again, the author is highlighting the fact that in faith, Abraham obeyed. It was in obedience to commands from the Lord. It was in, with a heart that fully trusted in God's ability to fulfill his words that Abraham had left. Abraham lived in the city of Haran for many, many years of his life, and now he took up everything, and he went out in the name of the Lord. And once he arrived at Canaan, the Lord told him to settle down there. And once he settled down in that place, he continued to be so convinced by what the Lord had commanded him that he didn't even build a house. He didn't build a comfortable place to live in. He had resources. He could have done that. He could have figured out some way to make his family comfortable. But somehow in his heart, nourishing his faith day by day, he knew that God had a different plan for him, namely to live in tents from that point of his life to the day of his death. From 75 years old to the day he died, Abraham did not have a physical house. He lived in tents. Think about that. Kim and I are probably a little bit rare birds. We actually enjoy tent camping, and we try to do it every summer when we can, but the maximum amount we've ever tent camped was 21 days, and I have to tell you, that is about my limit. <laughs> Around the 21st day, I was like, even a bad bed sounds really good right now. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. Well, Abraham, our brother, started at 75 and died living in a tent, not because he was foolish, or not because he was trying to show how spiritual he was to the world, simply because it was his understanding of what God wanted him to do. He was walking in faith. He trusted the Lord so much that he was willing to forgo all the comforts of this life to have what God had for him. That's what faith looks like, beloved. The details are different for each of us. But we draw near to God, we listen to him through his word, by his spirit. We get an understanding of his will for our lives and we walk in that way by faith in him that he will be faithful to us. And indeed, we will discover if we walk in light of his word and in his presence, we will discover for ourselves that God is faithful. Abraham chose by faith to live as a wanderer and a resident alien all the days of his life. He never really had earthly roots in an earthly place like so many of us desire because if you look at verse 10, here's the reason. Because he was looking forward to the future, not to the present, to a city whose designer and builder is God. Right now, the author doesn't tell us much about what he means by that, but right now he just wants us to know that the, the point is this, that Abraham heard and believed and he obeyed the words of God no matter what the cost or consequence that was uh, not material to Abraham. I'm not saying he had a good attitude every single day of his life about living in a tent. I don't know if he did or not. 
But it wouldn't bother me at all if I found out he was a little grumpy about that at times. All I know is he kept walking in obedience to the Lord, whatever his mood, whatever his mental state. He kept trusting the Lord, kept pressing on in the Lord. Right now, that's what the author wants us to think about. He wants us to understand this is how faith functions. This is how faith works. This is how faith endures in the midst of a difficult generation. We draw near to the Lord. We nourish ourselves on the word of his presence, on the word of his son, and on the word of of scripture. And with this in mind, the author now turns our attention to Abraham's precious bride, Sarah. And as it was with him, so it is with her. The author could have said so many things about Sarah's life. She is an extraordinary example of faith to all of us as well. But he chose to focus our attention on the conception of Isaac, which took place when Sarah was 89 years old. Now, we who've been around the church a long time, we need to pause here and take this in. This isn't a fable. This is a true story. Physical human bodies did not function differently 4,000 years ago than they do right now. It was not possible for, Abra- or for Sarah to become pregnant with a child, not in a natural sense. The time had already passed. She entered into the impossible, though, by faith. She entered into the impossible by clinging to the words of God. She entered into the impossible by nourishing her faith with the presence of God and bringing all of her ups and downs to the Lord over and over again. Sarah believed that God is faithful. It says this in verse 11. She believed that he who promised is faithful, and so she endured, she pressed on. She kept putting one foot in front of the other. She kept obeying to the best of her ability by the power of God day by day. And eventually, she came into the fulfillment of one of the great promises that God made to them. Along the way, her and Abraham made some grievous mistakes, some of which the world is still paying for today. But even then, they kept pressing on with the Lord. Even then, they kept going to him. Even then, they kept seeking his grace. And eventually, by her persistent faith, the Lord blessed her. And she became pregnant at 89 years old and bore a son at 90. Sarah's persistent faith in the words of God led her to eventually taste the great joy of God, even if the path was very painful. Now, some of you who know Sarah's story well might push back on me a little bit here, and I don't mind if you do and say that she's actually not the most stunning example of faith, because after all, the the last time God promised her she was going to be with child, she did what? Do you remember? She laughed at him, right? And she wasn't laughing in joy, was she? She wasn't laughing really in belief. She wasn't laughing in happiness. She was laughing in pain. She was laughing in a way of saying, yeah, right. She was laughing as an expression of the pain of of waiting on the Lord for, at that point, 24 years. Sometimes, beloved, living by faith is not a pleasant thing. Sometimes it is excruciatingly painful. And Sarah was in the midst of that pain when God reiterated his promise for the final time. So you may say that she's not the greatest example of faith, and I think that's a valid thing to at least bring up. But I would just want to say two things in response to that. First of all, we have to understand that Sarah's laughter didn't come out of nowhere, but that it came out of actively waiting on the Lord and being regularly disappointed when the promises of God did not come about in the time she thought they were going to come about. Did not come about on her timetable. Don't we all do this? We all we hear a promise from God and sometimes expect it's going to happen like this, and God's timetable is very different from our timetable. 
Sometimes the, the flow of his purposes are not what we think they're going to be at all. And so while we're waiting on the Lord and frankly struggling with our expectations, and then our expectations come slamming up against the reality of what God had actually willed from the beginning, then we get disappointed and we can become hurt and angry and bitter. And when the promises of God are reiterated to us, sometimes it just feels like a knife stabbing in the heart. And I actually think this is what Sarah was feeling when the Lord came this final time and said, you're going to be with child. By this time next year, you will have a child. I think in Sarah's heart, she just said, Lord, please stop. Like, don't say this again. I can't take this. I want to believe, but I cannot take this. I've heard this promise for too long, and I haven't seen it come about. And the laughter came out of pain, and all I'm saying is, let's give our sister a little bit of room to vent. Because God did. I don't see anywhere in Genesis where God even rebuked Sarah for this. He just said, it's going to happen, Sarah. It's going to happen. God was patient with her. And I want to say to you that this is also what faith looks like. Sometimes I think we get too idealistic of a vision of what faith in actual daily life looks like. True faith brings its pain to the Lord. True, True faith brings its doubts to the Lord. True faith brings its questions to the Lord. We bring these things up before him. We work these things out with him. This is why I say Sarah is a great example of faith. Because we're dealing with a real, weak, broken, strong, joyful, sometimes pouting woman. A real human being who brought her heart before God year after year after year after year. And then the second thing, despite the pain of her faith, Sarah did walk in obedience to the promises of God. What I mean is, and I don't want to be inappropriate here at all, but what I mean is that at the age of 89, she did what was necessary for a woman to become pregnant with a husband who was 99 years old and should not have been able to even do what's necessary to become pregnant, right? I'm not at all trying to lead us down an inappropriate way, but people of that age don't usually go to bed together They don't usually expect to be able to have intimacy together, and they certainly aren't thinking about getting pregnant together, right? But that's what Abraham and Sarah did together, as an act of obedience is what I'm saying. You have to see this as an act of faith. I don't even know if they had a good attitude about it. I don't know. I don't care. What I see is people who said, well, the Lord spoke. We're going to walk in this way. And because no matter what their mindset was, no matter what their attitude was, because they walked in obedience to the promises of God, not the wonderings of their flesh, but the promises of God, God blessed them at the exact right moment and caused her to be with child at 89 years old. That doesn't happen. But that's what God did. Because they were walking by faith. And I just want to say, this is also how faith works. Sometimes it obeys through the pain. Sometimes faith doesn't feel like obeying and it just keeps obeying because our trust in the faithfulness of God is stronger than our sort of submission to our own feelings and to our our own pain. Because Sarah lived by faith in the promises of God, a son was born to her by the grace of God. And sons were born to him and sons were born to them. And the nation of Israel came into being and the kings and prophets and priests of the Lord came into being. And the Lord Jesus Christ eventually rose up out of the Jewish nation nation, to live a perfectly righteous life 
and then to die a horrific death on the cross, to be raised from the dead three days later so that whoever believes in him from any tribe, tongue, language, and nation on this earth will not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus Christ sent his followers out into the earth, all over this earth, to preach the good news to every single people. And one day he will gather us in together and we will be one singular church made up of every single tribe, tongue, and nation. Beloved, all of this is in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. I will bless all the nations through your offspring. Singular, your offspring. That's talking about Jesus. And I'm not making that up. Paul says this in Galatians. He's talking about Jesus. God is faithful, beloved. In Abraham and Sarah's lifetime, whatever God revealed to them, there's no way that they could have conceived the fullness of what God had in mind through those promises. But they just day by day believed. They day by day obeyed. They pushed through the pain and here we are. We're believing because of what God did through them. And and I'm telling you, I'm not trying to make much of them. I'm trying to make much of God. I'm not trying to give glory to our brother and sister. I'm trying to give glory to God and the example that he gave us in them. It was God who called them. It was God who made the promises to them. It was God who patiently reiterated his promises to them every time they cried out to him in pain. It was God who sustained them through so many seasons. It was God who forgave them when they sinned in extremely unfortunate ways. It was God, it was God, it was God. To this day, it's God who is still fulfilling his promises to Abraham, friends. I say all this to give glory to God. He is faithful to his promises. And if we will learn this simple way of life, I know most, maybe all of you, are not beginners in all this. I'm aware of this. I'm not trying to speak to you like first graders. I'm just trying to stir you up by way of reminder. Faith needs food, and the food is the word of God, the living Lord Jesus Christ and his revealed words. As we nourish ourselves by his words, we get whatever we need each day to just keep pressing on and keep pressing on. And one day, like Sarah and Abraham, we're going to go, wow. God meant what he said. He really meant what he said. And he is faithful. Oh, how I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear today, hearts to receive, wills to bow before God our Father, because I believe he's lifting up our brother and sister, Abraham and Sarah, before us today to help us walk in this way. Not just to admire them, but to walk in the way that they walked. Feed your faith by the word of God. The author has a little bit more to say about Abraham, but first he pauses in verses 13 to 16 to tell us something that's very important. Specifically, the author wants us to know that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm sure he would add more down the road as well, all of these died in faith, even though they did not receive most of what God had promised to them. They received enough to keep them going. But not one of the people listed in Hebrews 11 received all of what God had even promised to them personally, much less to his people in a a broader way. God sustained them. God nourished them. God gave them what they need to persevere. But he did not fulfill all of his speech in their lifetime, and they died. They stopped breathing on the earth. But when they died, they died in faith. They did not die in atheistic rebellion. They did not die in doubt. They died in joy, in hope, in the sure belief that God would be faithful. 
right now Joseph is coming to my mind. You remember even on his deathbed, he's giving his descendants instructions about stuff to do with his bones when God would bring them back to the promised land. He died believing that God would be faithful to his promises even though his part of the journey was over. They died in faith and we need to know this. We need to understand that our hope is not in this world. I've said to the Lord so many times, I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't really care to know any of the details. I just want, I beg you for this, Lord. Let me die in faith. And if my brain is gone, I did a lot of very hard drugs when I was 12 years old to 20 years old. I don't know what's going to happen to my brain. I'm only 55 and sometimes I feel like I better wear a name tag to know my own name. I don't know, but if I, if I don't even have my mind about me, I hope that I just say Jesus. Just keep saying Jesus somehow. I just want to die in faith. And I do believe this is the godly heritage of people who will follow in this way. Nourish yourself by the word of God. And when you come to your dying day, you will say, oh, my time is up, but God's faithful. God is not done. Until the Lord Jesus comes back, God is not done. Now to keep it real, did these people ever doubt in the promises of God? Of course they did. Did they ever fear? Of course they did. Did they ever become angry with God? Of course they did. Did they ever wonder if they had misheard God or misinterpreted his promises? Many times they did. Did they ever think that God had perhaps changed his mind and changed the plan? Yes, they did. But time after time, no matter what the season or difficulty of doubt, each of them went to the Lord and spoke with him, and God, in his patient grace, reassured them. By my count, Abraham received direct revelatory speech from God seven times in his life. And I'm not talking about his daily communion with God. I don't know what that would have looked like for him day by day. But what I know is every time Abraham plunged deep into doubt and in his heart was saying, Lord, are your promises still valid? Is the deal still on? Did I understand your promises right? Every time he did that, the Lord appeared to him in a special way, in a revelatory way, and reiterated the promises and said, Abraham, yes. I I will fulfill my promises. And usually the Lord said, and here's one more little piece for you to chew on. God patiently nourished the faith of our brother even when he was in doubt as he came before the Lord. And this is what all of the examples of faith in Hebrews 11 did. Have you ever wondered why the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart, King David, when he's the guy who committed adultery and then committed a murder to try to cover up his adultery? A man after God's own heart, huh? What would you all do with a pastor that you had that you found out committed adultery and then killed the husband to hide it? What would you do? (laughs) How would you think about that person? I would not in any way, shape, or form want to justify what David did. All I can tell you is when he was confronted with his sin, he ran to the Lord. He went to God. In the profound depth of his brokenness, he went to God. When he was ascending the Mount of Olives, being driven out of Jerusalem as a partial consequence for his sin, he sought the Lord and wrote psalms all the way up that mountain. Even up on the top, he wrote a couple of the psalms on top of that mountain as he was fleeing. No matter what came about in David's life, no matter if it was the consequence of his profound brokenness, he went to God and went to God and went to God and went to God. That's what faith looks like, beloved. It doesn't always go just the way that we think it should go or the way that we would want it to go. But faith goes to God and goes to God and goes to God. The people of God live through difficult times. Could I get an amen to that? We fear, we suffer, we doubt, we pout, 
When I was a child, I was an excellent powder. And I, I'm pretty good at it still now at 55. But I, hopefully I pout to the Lord. I come to him and he helps me. He disciplines me. He listens to me. He gives me what I need. He, he helps me to press on. He's given my wife that's as far the opposite of a powder as you can imagine. She doesn't put up with pouting very well. So praise be to God. I have a coach and she has a coach in me too, a, a friend in the faith that can help us go on. God does what he has to do to nourish us as we feed on the food of his word which is his presence and his revealed speech through the Bible. Now, the author tells us, beginning in verse 13, that these heroes of faith saw God's promises from a distance and welcomed them, or they embraced them as as future-oriented things. And I think the way that they did that was simply by asking the Lord, and somehow the Lord gave them enough knowledge to know, like, let's just take Abraham and Sarah as an example, like, all of the promises that I'm making to you about the very land that you're living in are not going to come about in your lifetime, and in fact, they're not even going to come about in this age. I have prepared something greater than what you could see. I don't know all of what Abraham saw in that, but I am persuaded that Abraham saw that the fullness of the promises of God are in another age. I believe with all my heart that he saw that. The author of Hebrews is telling us that he saw that. And this was great because it helped him to put his hope in the right place. He lived on this earth with all of his might for the glory of God, but his hope was in the proper place. Isn't that so important? Right now, it feels like our world is about to fling to pieces In the news we're getting about Russia and Ukraine, that's some scary stuff over there in Europe, isn't it? I mean, only God knows what's about to transpire in this world in the next year or 10 years or 20 years. It just feels like we're on the precipice of some very dark times. And I don't want to necessarily go through that. I don't want the earth to go through that. But what I know is our hope is in a better place. And so we can be the light of the people of God here in this age because our hope is in another age. God promised to Abraham and he promises to us a city, a very great city. I don't know exactly what he said to Abraham about this, but I know in Revelation 21, he gave us a a little bit of a glimpse into it when he said, for example, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. He will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. They will live as one people before one father. They will be one with each other as well. They will be a family forever to the glory of God and to the eternal joy of their souls. This was Abraham's hope. It was his family's hope. This is our hope that they and we will be with God in that great city where the glory of God is the sun and moon. So much so that the sun and the moon are not even necessary. Where the heart of God is the temple of our worship where the presence of God is the joy of his people, where the praises of God are the only songs that we sing, where the love of God is the life pulse of the city and the justice of God reigns across the land without any opposition or contention, where the grace of God forever wipes away every tear we've ever cried, every pain we've ever felt, wipes away death and suffering and dying all together, where the reign of God will endure forever without opposition. Amen. This is the city in which we're hoping. We have to live in this world. We have a job to do in this world. We have a place in this world as the people of God. We are the light of the world by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but we must put our hope in the right place. Abraham and Sarah did, and it helped them not to be, you've heard the thing that you can be so heavenly minded that that you're no earthly good. 
you can also be so earthly minded that you're no earthly good. We've got to be heavenly minded in the right way, put our hope in the right place so that we can play the role we have here. Whatever the consequence, whatever the costs, we just become the people of faith. This happens not as we talk ourselves into it, conjure up faith. It happens as we nourish our faith in the presence of God and hover over his words. Faith needs food, and the word of God is the food of faith. With this in mind, the author closes his treatment out of Abraham with one more thing. It's not a small thing, but I'm going to be brief about this. It's beginning in verse 17 where he draws our attention to that time in Abraham's life when he was old and his trust in God had become very strong. At that time, God issued to Abraham what is, in my mind, the second most difficult commandment ever issued in the history of the world. It only pales in comparison to the command upon Jesus Christ to willingly take up his cross and die a horrific death. It it is the time when God drew near to Abraham and commanded him to take Isaac, his only begotten beloved son. Think about that. Think about this with me for a second. If they had had Isaac when he, when they were, let's say 77 and 67, whatever their ages would have been, obviously he would have been a valuable child to them. He would have been valuable if they had him in his in their twenties. But think about how valuable this child was to them because they did not have him until he was 99 and she's 89. Think about that. Think about the value you would have on a son that came about at that way and at that time. That son would be very precious to you. God told them, take your only begotten, most beloved son, sacrifice him in a place that I will show you. And again, God did not tell him exactly the place. He just said, head out and I'm going to show you when and where. That is an impossible command, beloved. That is an absolutely impossible command to conceive and to obey. But Abraham, by this time, had been walking with God for a long time. He had had many experiences with the Lord, and he profoundly, deeply in his heart, trusted in the Lord. Therefore, when this impossible command came, Abraham did not even blink an eye. He did not raise any objections. He did not hesitate. Rather, he simply and promptly obeyed the Lord. Now, if you look at verse 19, it says in the ESV that Abraham considered that God could raise his son from the dead. And the Greek word here literally means to calculate something. So I do think, as I've meditated on that word, I do think Abraham took time to process this commandment. I don't think this is merely an act of blind obedience. I think that God spoke to Abraham when he knew Abraham was ready for a command like this. I think he calculated the situation, thought about the faithfulness of God, thought about the entirety of his life and all that God had shown him and and came to this conclusion that even if I kill my beloved son, somehow God could raise him from the dead. God can do anything and he promptly obeyed the Lord. If Abraham had blinked an eye, I think the Bible would tell us that he did. In other parts of his life, isn't the Bible very honest with us about Abraham's failings, about his doubts, about his struggles? If he had struggled here, I believe the Bible would have said something about it. Since the Bible says nothing, I just believe Abraham was, had grown in his trust of the Lord where he said, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever it is that you command me to do. By this time in his life, he was about 150, 120 years old. Abraham knew that God is faithful. Abraham knew that God can do anything. 
Abraham knew that God will never violate his promises, even if everything looks like it's going in the opposite direction. And therefore, despite the difficulty, he walked in obedience to the command and he acted out on the world stage what is certainly the most graphic prophecy of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the history of the earth. In many ways, this is what Abraham's life was about. In many ways, this was the pinnacle of his existence, was to be a living prophecy for the world to see. A God, a greater father who would sacrifice his only beloved son one day on a cross. Now, when you look at where Abraham was living at that time and how far the journey was, and you just sort of trace out the available routes that were existing in that day, it is almost certain that this whole thing with Isaac transpired in Jerusalem. And who knows, but that, that whole thing transpired on the very hill where Christ would later take his life, but, or, or give his life, I mean. But whatever the particular details on that hill, at the very last moment, God intervened and gave a lamb for the sacrifice, spared Isaac's life. Abraham and Sarah and Isaac went on to live in faith together as a family until their dying day. And Abraham named that hill the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yirah. It was known by that name for centuries and centuries of time because Abraham learned again at the ripe old age now of 115, 120 years old. That even when God issues a seemingly impossible command, he is faithful. And I want us to understand, Abraham did not do this because of a flight of fantasy. He did not do this because he was moved by some charismatic speaker. He did this because the Lord spoke and he trusted in the Lord. This is how faith works. It feeds upon the very words of God and walks accordingly. Abraham and Sarah are tremendous, tremendous examples of what it looks like for us to walk by faith. I wish that we had more time to talk about their lives. Maybe someday I'll make up a whole series on them because I I love them so much. I've learned so much from them. But for now, I just want to close by saying again to you, let's walk in this way. The details of our lives are much different than the details of their lives. But the heart of life in Christ is exactly the same. We have received a word from God. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not a silent God. He has spoken to us. So let us draw near to him day by day by day. Just like the manna. Our faith needs to feed upon the word of God every day. Not occasionally. So let us feed upon the word of God. Mainly the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then his revealed words. And watch how he leads in the way. Take the Lord at his promises. And you for yourself will find out in the depths of your heart. Not just on the surface of your Sunday school mind, in the depths of your heart, you will find out that God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful to you for who you are. I'm grateful to you for demonstrating your faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and so many others after them for century after century, even millennia after millennia. Lord, you don't owe us these examples. You don't owe us anything. And yet you so kindly, graciously show us that you are faithful and you show us the way to walk in faith. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us now. Now that we've heard the word, I pray that we would walk in this way. For those who have become lax in their time in your word and in your presence, I pray that this would be a loving encouragement to come back 
to come back into your presence day by day. They know how to get there. They know what to do when they're there. I just pray for a loving invitation. And for those who are already enjoying deep communion with you, Lord, I just pray that this would be very encouraging to them and nourishing to them and assuring to them. Lord, I pray that you would use this word in the lives of your people for the joy of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.